Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. Each month on Spectology, we pick a science fiction book, we read it, and we talk about it over two episodes. This month, our book has been The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval, and this is our post-read episode where we're going to dig deep into the spoilers, the plot, the characters, the themes, all the all the good fun stuff about the book. Um, if you're just joining us, I would recommend that you go listen to our episode two episodes ago, uh, which is our pre-read for the book, which is spoiler-free talks a lot about the kind of stuff that you might want to know before actually getting into this book. We talk a lot about the history of horror, of Lovecraft, of race and horror, that kind of stuff. Um, it was a fun conversation we had. So yeah, Matt and I are back. Back in action. Adrian's back in action. Yeah, I can talk again. We read the book. We liked we did. the book, right? <laughs> we did like the book. I certainly <laughs> liked the book a lot. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad because I, I recommended this one to you, right? You hadn't read it before. That's right. Okay, cool. So yeah, I I read it, uh, I guess, pretty soon after it came out. I really loved it. I'm glad that others have as well. <laughs> it's a perfect well. October read. You know, we're recording this in uh, mid-October and, you Wearing know, my at, flannel. at least, exactly. <laughs> and, and where I, you know, I'm in Boston, the leaves are changing it's gotten a little cold finally and it's just the perfect the perfect book for this time of year yeah short fun uh really interesting and meaty in a lot of cool ways uh cosmic horror-y but not in a way that will make you feel bad about yourself and about the state of <laughs> politics in the world i mean maybe <laughs> or, or if it does it, you know maybe a little yeah 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 <laughs> yeah it's, yeah. Not, a, it's not a cheery read I right say. right right but I, uh, You're not, yeah. Oh, I was, I, I like reading it at one point, like halfway through it, especially given I have a lot of stuff going on in my life right now. And I was reading, it, I was like, man, I wish I had chosen a fucking fun book instead of a like horror really? book no. right now. It's so, fu- I, f- I find it really fun. That's why I have this upbeat way of describing it, even though it's about like dark stuff. Like, I that's found fair. this to be that's fair. candy. It's candy to me. You know, I just love reading stories like right. this. I think it is, it's very, I mean, it is very dark. It's very intense. Yes. And like, I'm going through a yeah. dark and intense period of my life. And so oh. it was not escapist in oh. any way. <laughs> oh. Well, this is a good point to maybe mention the the content warning again. Oh, yeah. Uh, we mentioned call. in the last episode, uh, a lot of violence, very graphic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, horror. like yeah. racist police violence against black people shows up. Um, yes. which I think like deserves its own special call out. Oh yes. Uh, I had forgotten this, but they obviously like use the N word multiple times. I say obviously cause there are a bunch of like white characters, cops, etc. sort of like, you know, existing. And it's about the interplay between like white society and black society. Um, so there's in the 1920s. Yeah. Right. Right. In like 1924. So there's a lot of, um, everything you'd expect around that shows up. Yep. Yep. And in addition to that, there's some some I guess you could call it torture or like extreme violence at the end. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think is, definitely. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of. Yeah, I guess it's like it's pretty gory. It's pretty like intense and up close and personal with it, too. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is a spoiler episode. So, I mean, you know, somebody gets scalped. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we do spoilers from the get go. So yeah, too bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's it's, like it's it's very gruesome. Right. And we will be talking about all of this stuff in depth. So any, you know, content warnings for the book are also Apply true the for this episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
what we've talked about doing is going, it's a fairly short book. So I think we can actually walk through the plot and there's like nice little elements in the plot where we can kind of talk about the specific characters and themes and stuff that those elements bring up. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Let's do it. So we start with Charles Thomas Tester, um, who is a black man, a 20 year old. I think he's, he's, he's young. He's like a young black man who is, um, Mm -hmm taking the subway out to Flushing, Queens, where he's going to meet with an old woman whose name is Ma Ott, um, who, you know, has some stuff going on with her that we'll talk about. And he is delivering a magic book to her. Um, So it's pretty clear right from the get-go that, like, you know, magic exists. We're in sort of, you know, we're in, like, 1920s New York as Lovecraft wrote about it. I mean, it's, it's a retelling of Lovecraft's no or short story really um the horror at red hook we should mention that again yeah. um and so this is you know you know this is this is a guy who in addition to being kind of a hustler also has side jobs of like delivering magical tomes <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the first things old we ladies yeah the first things we learn about uh he goes by tommy tester the first things we learn about tommy tester are that he's this sort of one of his main hustles is that he kind of pretends to be a jazz musician i think a blues uh, musician uh, uh, right they say blues yeah, okay man. <laughs> they, they say <laughs> he pretends to be a bluesman which is mostly synonymous with jazz at this point in the history of jazz okay and, well you know yeah i know shit all about that so <laughs> and he um and his his hustle his whole thing is that he carries around this guitar case which is empty (laughs) and he'll like hum badly and people will just sort of white people will will see him this this you know young black guy with a guitar case humming badly and they'll just sort of like uh they'll they'll by the kind of ledger domain of his appearance they'll uh, they'll assume that he's like a actual you know musician and they'll give him money (laughs) right he's busking you know but he's busking without actually playing anything with no talent (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but in addition to this he also does these like odd jobs um and this is one of those odd jobs um and it seems like this is one of the points like when he's back on the train coming back from flushing is when he realizes that oh like i've been doing this in the wrong neighborhoods i've been trying to do this kind of like near harlem and obviously like there are actual good bluesmen there and people like don't buy my bullshit, but I can do this out here in Brooklyn in these white neighborhoods and like no one's going to be any yeah. wiser and there's no one else here. There's no other like blues yeah. around. So right away we have this like really important contrast between his sort of home world of Harlem where things work in a certain way that's sensible to him that he understands and the outer boroughs, which are these really scary kind of other dimensions almost you know when he takes the train out to flushing it gets like he becomes very quickly the only black guy there and the way people look at him changes very perceptively at each stop uh, people look at him more and more and they like wonder what he's doing more and more and that kind of transition it comes up again and again in this book it's really kind of something where like the the conductor like keeps asking him for his ticket and keeps asking right yeah you know it's all very friendly yeah is it right no it's not right (laughs) right exactly (laughs) yeah um and the other passengers watch him you know and and that kind of transition back and forth between harlem and not harlem between like the the black world that he's grown up in that he's safe in that feels like home and comfortable and the like larger you know outside white world where he is at the mercy of these institutional forces Mm -hmm. and these you know mobs you know that could mm-hmm. form 
um, that contrast is really cool and it comes up again and again. And it's a, uh, it's just, it's so cool how easily, how like seemingly effortless, effortlessly Victor Laval like creates that sense, the sense of moving from Harlem to out of Harlem. Right. And it's, it, it works so well. I mean, it's not belabored in the, in the prose, but it just comes at you, you know? Right. Well, there's an element I've talked about this before with friends who live in New York city and there's an element in which the subway really does feel like teleportation sometimes like you, you know, you get in, you go kind of underground, you don't really like see anything. And then you come out and you're in like a totally different world. And like the neighborhoods in New York city, you know, all of New York city, it's like what, like 10, 15 miles across, but it's as different as like night and day. I mean, there are neighborhoods in New York city that are, you know, where you're going to hear French on the streets, where you're going to hear, you know, like Patois on the streets, um, you know, Flatbush in particular, where you're going to, you know, uh, hear like Bangladeshi or Nepalese or Spanish. Um, or there's also, there's, you know, there's a place in New York City that is legitimately just like a New England coastal fishing town that's also a part of New York City um, called City Island. There's all these like really weird little bits of New York City. It's all very different from each other. And getting on the subway is this kind of, I mean, like what he does effortlessly is also like what living in this city just feels like sometimes <laughs> like I get on the subway and I, you know, like 15 minutes I'm out and I've, you know, went from like suburban America to the tallest buildings in the world or in the, in the America, at least, you know, it's just like, Whoa, here I am. Um, <clears throat> so I, I like that a lot just as yeah. a New Yorker. I, I enjoy this book. Another thing that I was thinking about, I mean, we still have just in the beginning of the book, but this is something that comes up again and again also is uh, the way that is 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 the Harlem in the 20s um, mm. and the culture of uh, Harlem in the 20s and, right. the and Harlem its relationship to the rest. Going on. Right. Harlem Renaissance, the music, the idea of black people having um, a high culture comfortable city life available to them even if it's only in this small bubble the in the book there's a place called the victoria society that we'll get to um which is in harlem which is a club basically it's it's you know you go there for dinner and to hang out um and everybody's dressed very well and, and it's run by caribbean uh immigrants and it's a place it's you know it's this homey nice place that it's not like a black tie type club it's like a uh, middle class or upper middle class club. type club. Yeah, it's a social club for for people who aren't incredibly insanely wealthy, but for people who are comfortably well off. And it it's it it's you know, and the 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 food of that they serve in this club is described the the Caribbean cuisine and contrasted to the other kinds of Black American cuisine and you know the kinds of conversations that people have and then the music that you hear on the street and the kinds of people that you see on the street. And of course, alongside all that, the way that, you know, white New York interacts with Harlem is, is very, you know, maybe hasn't changed that much. I don't know, but there's a, a lot of, oh, I think different... it's changed a lot. I mean, now gentrification <laughs> is the, is the thing as opposed to like the outside influence. Well, I was just thinking about the, the, you know, in the book, there's a lot of, um, what do they call it? The John's handshake or the move that the cops do to, right. to black people where they put their hand on their neck. We should um, we should uh, we should keep yeah. going with the plot and because uh, we need to dig into some of this yeah. when it comes up. I was just plot. that versus stop and frisk. But anyway, oh okay, right, right, right. Um, 
Well, I think stop and frisk is less Harlem and more Brooklyn, Bushwick, that kind of thing. Uh, is it? Oh, okay. So the, um, and luckily that got shut down. Uh, anyway, so at this point he's busking and he's doing a lot of it in Brooklyn. Uh, Tommy Tester is. And at one point while playing, he meets a guy named Robert uh, Sweetam or Sweetam. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name. It's Dutch according to the original uh, short story. So this is this is this is the the kind of like antagonist character in Lovecraft's original short story. Sweetum, um, what he like sees him and he he pretty much he offers to pay him five hundred dollars to play a party to just like come and like play music for a single night. And um, Tester oh, is yeah. at, at at this point, Tommy Tester has gotten a guitar, so right, he, he right. Was, he's using his dad's guitar. Robert Sweetum um, sees him. He uh no he buys a guitar with the money from Maat. Oh, you're um, right, you're right, you're right. And and so when Robert Robert Sweetum sees him playing an actual guitar, so he then right. And so um so he offers to pay him five hundred dollars to play this party, which I looked it up, and that's equivalent to like seven thousand five hundred dollars today. So you know he's offering him a lot of money to play for a single night. Um, and, and also he's not any good. He sucks. No. <laughs> and so he's a little bit like, oh, is this working like too well? What's going on here? Um, yeah, he, this guy must have an ulterior motive. Right. And so he's given $100 as an advance. Um, and immediately that gets stolen by the police. And that's where the like the the what do you call it? The to, the Tommy's handshake or whatever. No, whatever it's, it is. It's not Tommy. Yeah. It's it's something else. John's hair. John's handshake. John's handshake. Called. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that's where we meet Malone and Mr. Howard. Uh, Malone is a, he's the main kind of character from the Lovecraft short story. Uh, and he's what an Irish, I believe, police officer in the NYPD. And Mr. Howard is a private investigator um, who's been hired by Sweetum's family to trail him, to try to like find proof that he is, he is senile so that they can, take over his money from him pretty much. So they take his money, they rough him up a little bit, but he also learns that the cops are following Sweetum, that he's a little bit of a like, you know, the, his, his suspicions that like not all is right here are confirmed more or less. Um, so his, his suspicions are confirmed like immediately that like this guy is kind of like a shady character. Um, and that simply associating with him puts him in like line with the cops. So he, um, well, I think at this point, I forget exactly, but he goes back to Harlem and he like takes his dad out to the Victoria club. Is this where that happens? Victoria society. Yeah. His dad is, is a, is a little bit, you know, his impression of his dad, he's of course around 20. And, and so, you know, his, his 20 something, you know, young man impression of his own father is that his father is. A homebody who doesn't get out much and doesn't have much real experience or whatever, and so and his he wants mom, to like his dad's wife like died somewhat recently, yeah. like five years ago or something like that, and so they live together alone. In right, he lives alone with his dad, and and um, he uh, his dad is like a you know actually capable of producing music and stuff, but his dad is is no longer able to work. He used to be in construction, and he basically you know rendered himself incapable of work by. Mm-hmm too much injuries and stress working in construction for too long. So 
um, you know, he has this kind of patronizing view of his own father. And so he wants to like do something for his dad now that he's made some money from this hustle. And so he takes his dad out to the Victoria Society, which is this fancy, mm-hmm. which he thinks at this point, he labors under the, 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 the misconception that the Victoria Society is a kind of a rough and tumble gambling club. Right, um, where there's like prostitutes and violence, and it's dangerous. And well, but it turns out it's actually thing that he thinks that yeah. because it's the you know it's the Black Caribbean immigrants who who run it and who frequent it, right. and so he has his own kind of like you know xenophobic moment of like oh you know the Caribbeans are there, so it must be terrible. Exactly, or, or yeah. not, it's and not then, terrible. Like probably a good time. It's but also dangerous. dangerous and yeah. scary. Right. Right. So he thinks he's going to take his dad out for a dangerous night out, you know, with with prostitutes and and gambling. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, he gets to this place and, and it's it's nice. this it's what I described before. It's a middle class or like kind of a nice social club, and they serve dinners on tables, and you know, then there's like backgammon and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's there is gambling, but it's it's just nice. It's like a nice, comfortable. <laughs> You know, right, it's a good place, place people to relax. Like actually, would want to go. <laughs> yeah, and it, and the reason Tommy Tester decides to go there and has heard of it is because his best friend Buckeye works there. Right, and uh, you know he they they go in and and they have this really nice dinner and um and they have a great experience and his dad is like you know grumpy and skeptical of the food because it's Caribbean food and he hasn't had it before <laughs> but he turns out to like it and <laughs> they have a nice time and it's yeah. you know it's very relatable right it's funny because he they... has this view of his dad but it's not like it's not like that comes out of nowhere like his dad is of course, kind of like a you of know, grumpy old dude so. <laughs> it's it's a great i mean one of the themes of this book is this great portrayal of a father-son dynamic mm-hmm. and uh a young son growing up and kind of emerging into adulthood um, and and seeing his relationship with his father change as he does so, mm-hmm. uh, and this is like a key moment in in that sort of thread uh, when they have this kind of unexpectedly adult moment. It's like that first moment when you want to do something for your parents that's like an adult thing for them. That's not like oh right. I made them a card that I drew or whatever. It's like that first moment when you're young and you feel like you can do something for your parents that's more serious that they'll really like like you're going to take them out to dinner for the first time right whatever it is and that's there's always like some kind of like awkward social pressures through that whole thing of like they're just Mm -hmm. better at doing adult stuff than you are you don't have practice at it and like right you want to impress and you know they're not going to be impressed (laughs) right (laughs) they will they'll love you but that's (laughs) almost like worse you know (laughs) i know but at the same time it's like you you probably or at least at least i i was like tommy tester when i was that age i thought oh you know i'm so much cooler than my parents i know so many more like really important things than they do (laughs) even if i don't know how to like you know balance my checkbook or whatever i know the important stuff better than them and so like you know i'm really doing them a favor i'm like i'm showing them something they'd never see you know like that kind of you know incredibly condescending sort of attitude (laughs) (laughs) that only like a young boy or young man can have (laughs) yep right so there so the other thing there is he does tell his dad about this um about hustle. the Sweetum, well, no, about yeah, the Sweetum gig in particular, like more than right. the hustle, the gig, and I think no, that- no, that that to me is the hustle. I mean, like you know, I think he approaches the Sweetum thing with the same attitude. It's basically a bigger, right? It's sure. a bigger hustle. Sure. It's a bigger version of his usual hustle, right? But he knows he knows that version. there's there's something else going on here too. Um, and so yeah. he he tells his dad about it, and his dad is immediately like, you know, 
like don't do it. yeah don't do it and if you're gonna do it because i know you're gonna do it like stay safe <laughs> and like what he what his dad does which is kind of sweet is he teaches him a um a song of power like a summoning song like like a song that has magical properties and like can keep him safe and can keep him you know like good in this situation to, to, to whatever degree it can. And he also gives him a weapon. He gives him like a straight racer that he can like wear around his neck. And, you know, if he needs to get out yeah. of any jams, he can like use it as a knife. And he tells him the story about how, when he came to New York, um, he mm-hmm. always carried that on him throughout the journey. And he had to use it a couple of times. And this is like a big moment for Tommy Tester hearing his dad, describe a part of his dad's existence that he had no idea about it's that it's another classic child parent moment where your parent reveals to you some of the depth of their existence that you were totally unaware of and you're kind of blown away and you all you can do is sort of sit there mutely and and like listen to it and then you know your your condescension that you had before is revealed to be like incredibly pathetic (laughs) 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 or like totally misplaced so tommy takes the straight razor Right. And and they spend the next three days together learning the song, like him teaching yeah. teaching his son how mm-hmm. to how to sing and play this song. Um and so eventually, you know, it's fast forward three days and Tester is on the train to Sweetum's place and he gets there. And what is it is it this is the time where he's on his way there and um there are some like white kids following him and like, you know, threatening violence against him yeah. and like intimidating him. And it, you know, it almost comes to blows, but when he goes into Sweetum's house, like they get really scared and run away and like Sweetum comes out and sees that like, Oh, like, you know, this could have been a problem, but also you know, Sweetum has this like, and this is going to come up a lot in the next couple of things where he's, you know, he, he's one of these sorts of like folks who is, like like has friends in low places like he's a little bit of the 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 what's that pulp song common people like there's a little oh, bit of like God. that going on where he's like you know <laughs> yeah. he's like oh i see what's going on here but also like he's really condescend like talk about condescending you know like yeah, he doesn't even right. i think understand how condescending he is uh, not at all it's this book does such a good job of depicting the ways that people don't see what they don't know mm. and act ignorantly as a result and and everybody everybody in the book every character does it in yep. this book and that's one of the it's so effective i was just going to say about the white kids this is another moment where he's taking the train out and it gets progressively whiter and progressively more less welcoming and progressively more dangerous for tommy tester and he finally gets to the station and he's walking towards where Sudim's house is and these these white people following him but he doesn't look he doesn't turn around to, to look at them he just know like he hears their voices making fun of him, telling him to leave and stuff. And he finally gets to Sweetum's front door and grabs something to like throw at them, which is going to potentially be really bad for him. Mm-hmm. He turns around and they're just kids. They're like they're like right, young they're teenagers. teenagers. Right. And he had he had assumed that they were adults as he was walking. And it's it's like this really cool moment of I mean, cool moment is like a weird way to put it. It's <laughs> it's a great it's great writing. It's a great writing moment mm-hmm. of seeing the way misconceptions play again with the with these. Right. Um, well, and you know, at, being kids doesn't make them any less dangerous. And so of course ways it not. makes them more dangerous. You know, it makes it even more impossible yeah. for him to defend himself in any way. It's true. But they and do something they, that they do get scared and run out. away. Yeah. Right. Right. But Sweden it, points true. it out that like, oh, what do you, you know, 
what happens if you blind one of them? What happens if you actually hit them with this rock you're right. going to throw? Like nothing good for right. you or for me. And especially right. for thank- me, so don't do it. <laughs> yeah. But thankfully, since they are kids, they, they get scared and they run off and nothing, mm-hmm. nothing no, no event occurs. But that also shows the, you know, that Sweetum is known in the neighborhood as like an unsavory fellow. Like they're more afraid of him and his house than of anything else. Right. Like to the point that they're going to run away and like not enter. Yeah. Um, which is, which is important because, you know, there's this whole thing of like Sweetum, like his relatives thinks he's gone insane. Like he lives in this big old mansion that like is overgrown and, you know, he's like clearly like from money, but like involved in these unsavory air quotes things. Um, and so it's just a good illustration of that. So, um, yeah. So what, uh, Tester goes in, uh, he's alone and he's like, wait, what? Like, I thought you wanted me to play a part in me. He was like, no, this is the rehearsal. You didn't think I was going to pay you $500 for, you know, a single evening. And Tester's like, no, no. But then thinks in his head, like, well, yeah, that's what you fucking said. (laughs) (laughs) I did because that was the thing that we agreed to. And, yeah. you know, there's and of this course, way in which like, you know, yeah. And he calls out that like, oh, this guy's a rich guy, so he can just make the rules whenever he wants to. Exactly. This this rich old white dude thinks he can just do whatever the fuck he wants. And mm. indeed, and he, he like, can. kind of can. Right. You know, so. Right. And I think there's, you know, there obviously the race thing plays into it. But like the class and money play, like yeah. if anything, more into it at the, at the, in this particular instance where it's like because the money is his and he knows that he can just make the rules as he goes along because uh, he knows that, you know. It's one of those it's weird a lot of questions. Money. I I don't I don't super love the like it's this is race more than money, this is money more than race stuff. I just think sure. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. unclear. It's unclear. He, you know, he's obviously a way more powerful dude. I guess uh, what I'm saying is that that's what the book is explicitly like. That's what Tommy is thinking about. He's not like he often thinks about race, but right here it's not. He is talking specifically about the class of the situation and knowing that he's like powerless here obviously because of his race for a number of reasons. But like, in addition to that, there's this like very yeah. large money differential. It's not like a, you know, middle-class white versus middle-class black money differential. It is like a rich person versus a poor person differential, which is, yeah. a, you know, just a different thing. It's one of the things this book does really well is it, it's very intersectional. I mean, the book, right. you know, Tommy is such a real person. He thinks about like everything that a real person would think about. He thinks about all the different ways in which he is at a disadvantage in social situations like this. In this particular one, he's focused on the money because this guy's like super fucking rich. Mm-hmm. He has this mm-hmm. mansion. Exactly. You know what I mean? And he had right. you in know, like the, the middle of Brooklyn. Like he has a mansion in yeah. the middle of a city <laughs> is essentially what's going on. Yeah. He's very strange and powerful, Suidem is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, so so now we're going to find out a little bit more, like, what does Suidem want with him? Like, what, what what's going on? So he leads him into this library, this giant library room where he says they're going to have the party. And he basically starts monologuing at Tommy Tester. Right. Well, he asks him to, like, start playing his music and then, like, starts monologuing at him while he's playing. And, and, and things start to get a little weird. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I keep telling night- him not to interrupt. Like it's important yeah. that he listen to the whole thing. And like Tester's a little bit like, I don't give a shit about any of this. Yeah. <laughs> like, Tommy Tester's pissed impressed. off. Right. Yeah, he's he's pissed off. A because he was jerked around, and the whole party thing isn't actually even happening tonight. And B because this is spooky and weird. And like, what is going on? Who is this guy? What is mm-hmm. he doing? Mm-hmm. And the monologue. What is it about? Well, it's about like, it's about. It's really weird. <laughs> it's right. about, you know, 
well, Lovecraftian we, like an, mythology. An element of like traumatic irony where like we know what it's about before the characters yeah. say it. Like we know right. that he's talking about Cthulhu because we have read Lovecraft's fiction before. Like we right. know he's talking about Relier and Cthulhu and like we know all of this Lovecraftian mythos already. So we're like, yeah. oh, what he's talking about is like waking up Cthulhu and hopefully getting on his right. good side when he like wrecks the apocalypse upon the entire world, which yeah. we also kind of know is silly and not how Cthulhu works. Like Cthulhu does not like take kindly upon the people who awaken him, you know? Yeah. There's an additional wrinkle here, where, which is that, you know, Sudim's game apparently seems to be, he, he over the course of his monologue, we get the sense that he, he basically wants to enlist the looked down upon and put upon minorities of New York mm. as his allies in destroying the world as it is. Mm. Because he says, look, you guys get screwed by the system, you know? All of you immigrants and black people and poor people are getting screwed. What I'm proposing is a total revolution led by Cthulhu. You know, he doesn't name Cthulhu, but like right. led by these dark powers from beyond. You know, what what does he refer to him as? The uh, the sleeping god or the drowned yeah, god, the, something the, like that. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll look that up. Um, or not, it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or not. Um, and uh, you know, I'm proposing a total revolution. You know. He doesn't ever mention communism. That's another thing that's ha hanging over this. The sort of yeah. the, the concept of total revolution that destroys everything about society as it is and totally remakes it from the ground up. Now, in his, you know, in his monologue, you get the sense that he hasn't really necessarily thought through the details. This is like, this is a guy who's like spinning a kind of dramatic vision. He's not exactly proposing concrete policy things. He's talking about something kind of dangerous and. He's talking about something that's going to be super violent and dangerous and, and mm -hmm. destructive. And he's not, you know, it's not clear where it's going to go. And it's all it all sounds a little bit, you know, insane. And as <laughs> he talks, a little bit insane. <laughs> as he talks, the, there's something happens. He's standing in front of this giant window looking into the library and Tommy Tester's looking at him backlit by this window or but it's nighttime. It's not backlit. But anyway, the window behind him changes and it the the yeah the, it like goes dark and then it's like underwater and then yeah. you see the stars and so it's like again clear to us that like oh they're like traveling through kind of like extra dimensions and they're actually traveling there. Tester is Tommy Tester is like not having any of it though and what like tries to leave the library like runs to the door and mm -hmm. opens it and uh, Sweetum like freaks out and is like no don't and he and Tommy opens the door. And who is on the other side but Malone, the like, you know, cop who had like, <laughs> like he had met with earlier, pointing a gun at him. And Tester is like, sure, it's about to fire and kill him. And then the door closes because Sweden has closed the door and he's asking him, what did you see? What did you see? What did you see? And he was like, oh, just just a guy. Yeah, just the detective. And, and Sweden's like incredibly relieved by this. He's like, oh, yeah. you know, like the door. Uh, when this 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 library is no, is not currently in Brooklyn. This library is outside, right? <laughs> and if you open the door, it you won't go to Brooklyn, go, right? And you don't, <laughs> you know, don't where know where it'll, where go. it'll go. <laughs> it might have gone. It, you know, you saw the detective, but it, you might have seen something far worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is great. Right. Cthulhu, so Cthulhu shit. what? So he like stays there all night and then leaves in the morning. Right. Yeah. So that's home. apparently what they do. They stay in the library all night because it's outside and they can't. Like they're too terrified to leave because yep. they might get eaten by you know the like deep Cthulhu ones or whatever the fuck, <laughs> right? 
<laughs> yeah. So um, they just stay in the library all night. And then in the morning, he like goes home to Harlem. <laughs> right. And this is where things take a like, I think one of the first turns, which is that he gets home to Harlem and there are police car like the the street's been shut down there are police everywhere like there's a crowd gathered and he as he gets closer and closer to his home he realizes that it's his apartment building that this is all centered around um and so he goes in and he sees malone and mr howard there and they like well he pick, can't yeah he can't go in he goes up to the police line right outside of his building right well that's right sees, so they, they yeah, pick yeah. him out of the crowd is what i was saying yeah, yeah. and um so he he goes up to it he tries to get in. They pick him out of the crowd and they with zero like empathy, just tell him that his father is dead. And it turns out that Howard shot his father because he, they thought his father was carrying a weapon, which was his guitar. It's it's a it's you an amazing know. moment. It's like ripped from the headlines. Basically, Absolutely. what happened was Howard, the private detective, went to Tommy Tester's dad's place broke in in the middle of the night walked into tommy tester's dad's bedroom saw tommy tester's dad in his bed with something in his hand and then opened fire on tommy tester's dad because it was probably totally a gun that he was holding right and then and this is reloaded and opened another clip like like he 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 (laughs) took time to reload and fire two round. I guess what uh, like two clips. I don't know if it's a clip. I think it's a six. He shot him like a bajillion times. Right. He shot him way more than necessary. And like clearly, you know, it's not. I guess it's not clear. But there's this kind of like element of like maybe it was just a murder. Maybe he just wanted to kill him one way or the other. And the like whole even the guitar yeah, I in mean, his hand is bullshit. You know. Um, yeah 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 well the, there's blood on the guitar but yeah who knows right. it, but it whether turns, he was holding it or not it's murder i mean he, he broke into the guy's well house yeah ab- absolutely, absolutely i'm not saying that, that it's not just like you know it's it might have been an assassination degree. yeah right yeah it, yeah it, it it might have been an assassination it might have been just just murder you know right it's, it's there's some kind of because what we find out is that Howard here was working for Ma at um the woman who he like gave the book to because one of the things that tester had done was he had ripped the final page out of the book because he knew that the book was like too powerful to give to anyone and that in Ma'at's hands like it could cause a lot of death and destruction so he tore the final page out of it and she hired mr howard to go get that final page back um so somehow things kind of have like conspired that mr howard knew that he was going to Tommy Tester's place, like knew exactly what the situation was mm-hmm. going into it. And I think that's part of why there's this open yeah. question of like, you know, how, to what degree was was any of this like a story? And to what degree was it like premeditated right. before he even got into there? Yeah. And then, so another part of this is that, you know, Tommy, this is like an important sort of element of how Tommy's character changes. Tommy Tester in the beginning of the book is the kind of guy who he'll do a hustle for a really sketchy, almost supernatural thing, Ma'at. He'll do a hustle for her, but he won't give her the complete book. He'll try to cheat her in a way that right. will help the, wor- help the world. Right. He'll try to like cheat her within the bounds of the, within the, you know, the le- bounds of the letter of their agreement by giving her the book, but he didn't give her the whole book, haha, mm-hmm. um, because he thinks that's good for the world. Uh, it turns out this comes back to bite him. In the sense that Ma'at is, of course, bound by the letter of their agreement. But like then after that, she can also just hire a dude. Right. <laughs> right. And then and then Tommy Tester, you know, as we will see, may not still be that same guy from now on. 
Right. Well, this is the point at which he, what he like, I don't even remember if he's able to go into his apartment or not, but, um, I don't think he ever does. Right. I think he, he goes, he gets onto the train tracks and begins like playing and playing well for the first time ever. And he's actually playing in Harlem and just like playing. And then he does that for a while and then gets on the train and goes to Sweetum's place. You know, when he, when he had left, he had been thinking he wouldn't be going back. He just like go see his dad and like, you know, it's a good story they have together. Now his dad's not there anymore. And so he's like, well, fuck it. I, I don't have anything left to lose. So I'm, I'm going back to this place. So he goes, starts playing the party. I'm going to run through this kind of quickly. Um, Sweetum, you know, gives his monologue again. This time there are like, like a 50, 75, 100, something like that kind of like, you know, people like leaders of these various immigrant communities is more or less what we get the sense that it is. Um, and while, you know, uh, Tester's playing the whole time and he's up there next to Sweetum and he's like, you know, sweet singing and playing and he's playing the song that his dad taught him. He's not playing one of his other songs. He's playing the kind of like song of power that his, his father taught him. Um, and then at one point at the like height of all of it, he gets just tired of the whole thing, kind of fed up and he opens the door to the library and walks outside end scene and that's the like end that we get of him yeah and that's that's uh until i think that maybe is that the last point of view from tommy tester that we get for yeah. the whole book yeah that's actually yeah. worth saying that up until this point the point of view character has been tommy tester i don't actually remember if it's first person or close third or what it i think it's a close third person it's close third yeah um but that's the last we see of that close third person perspective and it it it's it's actually exactly the 50 percent mark on my kindle and it switches over to malone and malone is now our viewpoint character just kind of like he was in the original story yeah so the perspective changes to malone it starts out right when yeah the last time we saw malone which was at harlem at the crime scene there right so we jump back in time just a touch um and he they actually they get on the train and they see Tommy Tester playing on the train and Malone's kind of freaked out by this. Um but they get on the No, it's not it's at the station. Yeah. yeah. That, that's they what see I mean. him at yeah, the station. Sorry, the the, the, the yeah. train platform. Sorry. In in New York speak like at the train mm-hmm. just means on the train platform. That's that's all I'm saying. Um so they they see him yeah on the on the platform um and they but they go to Flushing. They go to Queens where Ma At lives and deliver the page to her. And at this point, Malone is with Mr. Howard because uh, like Howard called him in after killing Tommy's dad as sort of like a no look like I, I you know, I have someone on the force character who can vouch, witness right, who can vouch for me. Right. And um, and and the best part is like it's it's so it's so great like Malone so Malone doesn't like Howard at all no. like Malone is uh, you know especially from his POV we get the, we get more info about him he's he's a sort of you know kind of he's interested in the literary himself. type yeah yeah he's like a literary type a little bit less you know of a macho type than Howard, a little bit less mm-hmm. arrogant and violent prone, violence prone. Also thinks of himself does, as like really one like... of the good cops. Like there's this right. clear thing going yeah. on where he like, he doesn't like the way that like Howard 
handles stuff. Right. And he would have handled it differently. But of but, course, it goes on with all of it. Right. Not only does it go on with all of it, but like, you know, the other cops ask him to like be a, essentially character witness for Howard. And, he, and he, of course, he just does it. He doesn't even think twice. Right. He's like, yeah, yeah, he's a good guy or, or something. Whatever you know, right after Howard murdered this guy in cold blood in his own house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, you know, of course, it's like this classic, very, very realistic, accurate portrayal of how, you know, in groups work and how people get sucked into perpetuating these racial hierarchies, you right. know, even if they well, think and that other, they're like, than that. You know, racial and other power hi- hierarchies. Yeah. I mean, there's this very real element, and this ties in obviously to the racial thing, but if like the, the police like work for white society, right? Like for all that, like Harlem has these like middle-class people who like have social clubs and everything else, what they don't have are like police because the police work for the whites. Yeah. And so it's very clear that like you can, you know, and I think that this is one thing when, you know, like when I learned about the Harlem Renaissance in school, it was always as like, oh, it was so great. You know, it was so great. And like black people could have all this great stuff. And it's like, Uh, and of course it, you know, completely elides over the fact that like, you know, they were making what they could for themselves because they were not allowed to engage with the rest of culture and society. Yeah. Right. There's and so, a lot, of course, yeah. like, and once they do that immediately, like, white people are like, oh, this is great. Like, it's ours now. Yeah. One thing that I find, this is just a, sort of an aside about the Harlem Renaissance, but one thing, and, you know, um, you know, African-American culture, you know, at that period in general, one thing I find totally fascinating about learning more about it is that, um, you know, the more you dig into it, the the more that it's full of these things that legitimately can't be found in the white culture of that time. There's an entire literature around passing, for example, which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. has no analog in the white culture of that time, because how could it, you know, passing means pretending to be white basically. And for decades, for a really long time throughout the Jim Crow period and after, you know, passing is this, this is just, like I said, total aside, not super right. relevant to the book, but like a, a something that I find very distinctive about Harlem Renaissance culture. Um, I will say, I, I wouldn't call passing pretending to be white because that kind of implies that there is actually something innate yeah. to whiteness as opposed to like, like passing is when someone who like most white people would not be like would not consider white if they knew who they were is considered white just on the face of things. Well, it's like, I mean, you've, you've, you've hit upon the like central weirdness of it. Like the whole concept of what white is and what white isn't is Mm -hmm. totally fraught and kind of makes no more, no sense. Like the more you look at it, right. Do you have to have, I mean, it has to do with your parentage. It also has to do with what you look like. It also has to do with who your like friends the are. the culture you grew up in. How you grew up, how what you your education speak. is. Yeah. Right. Have it has you, to do with all these things. Did you see Spike Lee's most recent movie, Black Klansman? No. There's, I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff about passing in that movie. I, I would, uh, for, for folks who are interested, who liked this book, I would highly, yeah. highly recommend Black Klansman. It takes place in the 70s instead of the 20s. Yeah. Um, but there's this whole element of like... They talk a lot about passing. They talk about what passing means for like black people on the phone versus black people in person versus like there's a Jewish character who, you know, is like not even culturally Jewish. He didn't actually like grow up Jewish in any way. And he he doesn't even realize that he's passing. But through the course of the movie, he begins thinking about his own heritage in a different way as he interacts with these, you know, because he's never really thought about his 
racial heritage, doesn't really care that much about it. But the Klansmen who he's infiltrating care a lot about Jews, right? And so he is like forced to really engage with his own identity through this like, you know, yeah. uh, clandestine operation that he's working on. Uh, really cool movie. Really, really solid yeah. movie. So that's that's a good recommendation. I The reason that I bring this up and my sort of interaction with this idea comes mostly from the book Passing by Nella Larson, um, hmm. which is a classic of Harlem Renaissance literature. Um, it's a book about two women um, set in Harlem in the 20s. Uh, it's about these two women who are childhood friends, and um, they both have different relationships to this idea of passing. And it's a really good book. It's really, really interesting. And it kind of, I mean, one of the things that I found, like the, the, the whole reason I wanted to bring it up here, there's two reasons. One is that obviously Harlem Renaissance culture, it's very important. You know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a touchstone idea and concept and, you know, problem issue that people relate to differently. And it's also kind of, um, you know, there's this way, there's this sense that I get from stories about passing and not passing and choosing whether you want to or not and struggling with the emotional consequences of different choices that relate to it. That reminds me of, of, of this type of story of Black Tom, because it's all about how people choose to relate how it's 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 about how people choose to relate to the dominant power structure that they're in how people choose mm -hmm. to relate to themselves how people choose to construct their own identity in opposition to things and 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 not in opposition to things and it's sort of like you know it's not that dissimilar from black tom's project like or from tommy tester's project of trying to like mm -hmm. trying to like fit himself into this mess somehow you know and build defenses for himself and grab power where he can grab it I think it's a it's a it's a fascinating concept, and it's also a it's a concept. Like it's this amazing example of something that's like incredibly, uh, that has incredible valence in the black in the African American community, and doesn't really at all outside of it. Like mm -hmm. passing is not something I ever heard of growing up until I was you know in college. Like I never mm -hmm. even heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I think these are all. I, know, I mean, these are all the questions and, you know, stuff that when I first read this book, when I read it again this time that I've been, I know, because obviously like, you know, yeah, like white, like I don't even have Jewish ancestry or anything. I'm, you know, white, white all the way through. And so this, you know, but at the same time, like I have at times felt this element of passing just, you know, in more kind of a like class based way due to, as we talked about in the Romy Fletch episodes, a little bit of like, you know, the, the going from like poor rural white to like coastal elite Yale, etc. Like there's this, you know, this whole thing in which, you know, in certain ways, Yale's project is to like teach you how to pass in polite society like that more than anything else of is like what like a Yale education is about. Another important thing is you know, immigration and how that relates to this. Right. Um, the Caribbeans who you, we see, who we meet in the Victoria society in Ballad of Black Tom, you know, I mean, they're, they have a whole other project. They, they don't just, they, you know, we don't ever get their POV in this book. They're, they're sort of, you know, far on the side of the main events of the story, but right. It's you worth get, saying we don't get any immigrant POVs, even though they're sort of like the, the character yeah. they're, they're, they're like, unnamed masses in this in a similar way that they yeah. are in the original story. And that's maybe we're yeah. talking a little bit towards the end. Yeah. But the, um, the, you know, the, the, they are, they are trying to fit into Harlem, 
You know, they, they mm-hmm. are trying to, in some sense, you know, it, passing is not quite the right word because it implies a kind of secrecy. It implies a kind of subterfuge. Um, but at the same time, it, it sort of relates to how people fit in, like the, 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 the generalized act of trying to fit in. Um, it definitely relates to me to like Tommy Tester trying basically passing as a blues musician. It's like this fascinating sort of right. ne- nested kind of attempt to portray himself as different things to different people. Right. Well, and again, that's that's I think that's that's what Lethal is bringing up by having Sweetum kind of talk about like, oh, like I, I recognized you as someone else who, you know, understands yeah. masks and understands kind of yeah. like showmanship and, and you know. And what, what there's a spe- specific word that he uses that I'm forgetting now, but you know, kind of understands the occult, not just through the occult itself, but also through the, you know, like a cult of like making other people just think what you want them to think about yourself of like hiding in plain sight or of like, you know, making them think you're one thing when you're something else just by the way you present yourself. Uh, and he, you know, makes this explicit comparison between doing those things and magic. So... Malone and Howard go to Ma at, um, they give back the page, although not without some amount of, what is it? I think it's like Malone recognizes that she's an Egyptian goddess or at least recognizes that there's something like off about her and is like, haven't, haven't I heard your name in like Egyptian lore? Right. Um, Howard doesn't even recognize that there's anything weird going on. This is one of the places that we see that like. No, I think it goes beyond he doesn't give a shit. I think this is one of the places where we oh, see yeah. that like, oh, some people can be in yeah. tune with this stuff and other people are not. That's and some true. people will, they'll see the same events and some people will create a story where those are, events were not a cult and other people will see them for being a cult. And this co- becomes important later because Malone can see things that the other police officers can't. Like like actually can see and interact with the things that other police officers cannot. Um and so this is a little bit of foreshadowing for that. So that doesn't come as a complete surprise because he understands who Ma'at is. And I, and I looked it up and she is the, um, the Egyptian goddess of justice and balance of like judgment and, and like balance and order. <laughs> um, and what she wants is this um, book, which is the, the, the like a cult. Well, what was it? It's the Supreme Alphabet. Supreme Alphabet. There we go. Yeah. Supreme Alphabet. Um, Mr. Howard scurried after the cash. Malone and Ma'at were alone at the threshold of her house. It's an Egyptian name, isn't it? Malone said. From what I understood, the woman with that name lived in Karnak. Oh, she said. And how much do you think you truly understand? (laughs) Not enough, Malone admitted. The old woman nodded as pleased by his answer, the deference in it. What is that book? He asked so quietly he couldn't be sure he spoke aloud. The Supreme Alphabet. Ma'at said. Now you have every page, Malone said. Come inside my home, Ma'at cooed. I'll show you all the things I can spell with a little spilled blood. <laughs> Malone wisely turns her down. <laughs> this book is dope. Malone really like good. shuffles backward. <laughs> right. It's worth it's worth pointing out how well written the book is, too. I mean, it's it's a very yeah. compelling, well written read, and it's it's um it 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 likes it's it's so clear and easy to read. It doesn't have any of the kind of flowery ornament, ornamentation of Lovecraft's writing. 
in that way it's also a revision of him it, it like tells mm-hmm. a sort of story that's ripped right out of his mind but like told in language that is so much so much the authors and not lovecraft's um, yeah it's it's interesting because it's not I've been trying to figure out how to talk about it because the prose is not, I wouldn't call it like workman. It's not like this kind of thing that like it's clear like Asimov or Clark or whatever of it Limpid. being like simple to the point of dumb. It is, but it's also, it's like the style of it is like a very particular, like very clear, very mm-hmm. vivid. And like when, when it does get in any way flowery, it's like for a very specific point, like it, 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 it it's, it's very evocative, I guess is what I'm trying yeah, to say. It's like clear water. It's clear right, water, whereas right. Lovecraft is like a tangled branch. <laughs> you know, uh, that said, I do sometimes really love the tangled brambles of Lovecraft's prose. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. like a little bit of nostalgia there that I yeah. have a hard time getting away from. In, in between like paranoid racism, there's some really great like... There really yeah. are. I, I say that n- only only like a little facetiously. Like there really are. Like I enjoy it too. Right. <laughs> Um, I just realized Mr. Howard, HP Lovecraft, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. I just realized that literally. Oh yeah. Right now. Uh, Well, also there's also, what's his name? Howard, the, uh, shoot. Right. There is, there is a, there is a character who comes in later on who is clearly like Lovecraft trying to like learn more about the story. Um, that's, that's later. Let's, let's get through, let's get through the plot here. So they leave Maat's house uh howard goes back to texas um what's his name uh sweetum like wins his case against like his family like he shows up in court and just like in the lovecraftian story he's like no look at me i'm fine and like the judge is like yeah you are fine they can't take all of your money and power away from you and then he um and then uh at that point yeah at that point howard leaves new york and um what what's his name? Uh, Malone goes back to his old beat, which I it was really interesting to me the like similarity mm-hmm. to like ICE that his like his beat is pretty much like finding illegal immigrants and trying to like get them shipped off. Yeah, and that's straight from the original Lovecraft story, the horror mm-hmm. Red Hook. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. I mean, there's just so much stuff that hasn't changed or that has come back. You right. Know? I mean, that's kind of the worrying is like yeah. come back as much as anything else. I, I mean, I don't know how, how much it was ever gone. I really don't. It's Well, I it's, think ICE in particular is a pretty like new institution. The idea of having the yeah, entire but, institution that does yeah, this as opposed to like local police forces doing, well, yeah, doing it. It's it's not I mean, you know, it's if you look at the effects, it's sort of unclear, you know. I don't know. That we we should we should like not cut, talk too much politics. Yeah, like we, there's so many things we could do and they would all be different episodes. <laughs> Right. Not, that's not fair enough. Um, okay, fine. I won't I won't bring my politics into it. No, no, it's not <laughs> that. I, I I mean you should. It's inevitable anyway. It's just that right. getting well, deep into it. Well, I avoided bringing up like Elizabeth Warren's whole bullshit recently when talking about passing and whiteness and like constructions of that. Oh. It's um, just that it's a whole episode. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> you can say your view, obviously. Right. You should. My view is that Elizabeth Warren is bad and shouldn't have done that. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> so. I don't think she's bad. I just think she shouldn't have done that. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I, 
so he yeah so he goes back to his like beat which is kind of an on the streets beat and like stuff starts moving pretty rapidly like through the plot here like in a couple of pages a lot of stuff happens um which is it's a lot of stuff that in the original story takes up like a big like the whole middle chunk of the story kind of like happens in rapid succession here where um uh sweetum moves into red hook like takes over these three buildings kicks everyone out and moves his own people and like books and everything in. And um, there's these like uh, rumors of like missing children and of them like stealing people and kidnapping people and taking oh, them no, no, no. these places. So this is one, this is one cool thing about the book that's different from the story. Those don't exist. Malone invents that shit out of whole cloth in black Tom. That is not true. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm 100% positive. I just reread this piece. He doesn't, he doesn't, I'm going a lot, slightly out of order, but what happens is he invents the uh, kidnapping of Ma at Ott. So let's, let's go over what happens in order in this case. So he, there are separately some murders of children and stuff. Is that <laughs> no, what you mean? No, um, let, I'll just go through the, the plot. Cause I, this is the one part that I reread for this, which is Malone, um, goes to these buildings to like have a talk with Sweetum. He meets Black Tom there. So Tommy Tester is no longer going by his given name. He's now going by the name Black Tom. Something has happened to him since walking through the doors when we last saw him. He has like more power and more awareness and stuff around him. And Malone mentions that he can like sense power. Um, they have a really like kind of like a hostile standoffish kind of like discussion in the street where Tommy Tester like tells him to fuck off and he tells Tommy Tester to fuck off it. They're like, they're both kind of like, this is my area. You need to go back to your place. Like, and they both say that to each other. Um, and then Tommy Tester kind of like has the mic drop where, you know, black Tom, whatever at this point, um, He's like, okay, well, I have shit I have to take care of. Like, you don't want to be seen around here anymore. And then, like, a thunderclap happens, and he's gone. And essentially, he has, like, teleported himself up to Queens, to Ma, At, Ma At's place. What we see kind of, like, through reconstructions later is that he and Ma At get in a fight over the book and he is now so powerful that he wins this fight. And he does it by pretty much opening up a hole to the outside and swallowing her like entire like block, her like house, her front yard, everything, just like sending it away. Um, and so he's like, oh, we learned through this that he is very, very powerful now. Like he has these like ability to like summon and like move through space and time in a way that like humans don't normally do. Um and so we all kind of see this like through Malone's detective work of trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, and at this point, this is when Malone makes up the, cause he's like, okay, we really need to get into these buildings. And this is where he makes up the idea that, yeah. that black Tom has kidnapped Ma at, but the stories of children being kidnapped, the stories of like what ends up happening is separately. There are a lot of rumors of like children being kidnapped. And this is also helping his. Well, it's not his kidnapping, case. right? Like there's just missing kids. There's yeah, like but missing the, the kids stories on the like... street are you no, know, the stories on the street are very explicitly that like Sweetum is kidnapping kids and, and they are getting taken into these buildings. That's I think that's like only in the Red Hook story. And not no, I just story. reread this and this is what's going, this is what happened. Like I just reread this like an All hour right. ago. 
I will fight you on this one. <laughs> okay. Um, so the crucial, the crucial thing, of the, uh, uh, the reason why Malone makes this up is because he doesn't tell any of the other people in the police force right. what he really found out because he thinks that they won't believe him and they probably won't. Right. And I mean, so in order that, to probably. get, yeah, in order to get, to bring to bear on, you know, Sweetum and his followers, the full might of the police force, Malone makes up this stuff about Ma'at being kidnapped and so, you know, and and also these, you know, kids being held there. Um, there's no there. I guess like what I remember. No, he doesn't recall- make up the kids being held there. Like that is stuff that's getting made up by other people, because what's happening is that other neighborhoods around Red Hook are getting upset by what's going on in Red Hook. And the exact words being used are that race riots are starting where like there's ethnic conflicts between the different different ethnic minority Dude, this sounds like Red this sounds like not this book. It I just like read it. Book. I just read it. Where I literally this? just read it. I I don't know. I don't have it up here. Just believe me, and we can <laughs> move on. Yeah, like okay, let's move on. I I I obviously don't believe you, but let's move on. Right, but I I'll, just I'll, I'll read it, it later. Now. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let, let's super frustrating to me. <laughs> well, it's frustrating to me too. Like anyway, let's go on. Did you read it like an hour ago? I read part of it and our guy was leafing through it. I mean, okay. look, I didn't read this exact part, but let's move on. Yeah. There, no, the, his, the, there's this big worry. And it, the, I think the question is how much like Malone is like making it up in his own head. But his big worry is like, oh, shit, we can't have ethnic conflict spilling out beyond Red Hook because it'll like take down like this whole half of Brooklyn. Like there's a lot of different ethnic like things simmering up and a lot of different neighborhoods getting upset about each other. And it's all like centered around what Sweetum is doing in Red Hook and like what's going on there. And everyone is scared about it, not just in Red Hook, but in the areas around it. So like that seems to be true or at least he thinks that is true he's not making that up out of whole cloth and so like they are racing to get their like 75 police officers like what was the browning heavy machine guns like they're they're bringing out all this heavy artillery yeah it's actually really cool the the description and cool is the wrong word but it's like it's a it's a great moment in the book when he describes how they set up mm-hmm. this insane insane police raid on this on this neighborhood where they basically you know apparently Theodore Roosevelt had been in charge of the New York police force in the 1890s which is like 30 years ago before the story and he had like arranged to, that they would get the best new equipment and so the New York mm-hmm. police department is equipped with all of the highest tech military grade hardware <laughs> and they bring it all into this neighborhood to, to, to just wreck shit yeah. and it, it really I mean, resonates about the like militarization of the police exactly it, like it, it totally time. resonates with the stuff that you know obviously we've seen a lot of more recently mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah the whole like anti-terror kind of militarization of like local police forces um and then like of course that you know and this idea that like the cops would just come in and like willy-nilly begin because what they end up doing is they begin firing these like anti-aircraft guns at these like apartment buildings and so they're they're well they don't no they don't start firing yet they they set up they no, set they, up the guns they, they and eventually they raid. start firing yeah right, right, eventually right. they but, they but, destroy them right the point that I'm not going in order here like my point was just like that there's this element where they like fire these guns at apartment buildings where like people live yeah with just zero consequences and zero issue of like 
you know, oh, they're not, they're not people, you know, they're not like we can use military weapons against like people living on U.S. soil because they're yeah. immigrants or like, you know, brown or swarthy or whatever the fuck like, yeah. they're going to use there's to a, justify gr- There's a great, there's a great line where he mentions how the immigrants react to the cops showing up with this hardware. And a lot of them had come from places in Europe where wars have been going on and they never expected to see this in their neighborhood in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're lo and but behold. But they also like just know what to do, which is just like get up and go. Like they don't need to yeah. be told. They don't need right. They're just like, oh, okay, we've been through this before, like up and out, um, which is really, I mean, it's like sad kind of. It's it's a really like intense moment. And, you know, it brings to mind stuff like the... Um, like the fire bombing of the black neighborhood in Philadelphia in the seventies. And like, I mean like this shit mm-hmm. has happened in America, like where police mm-hmm. have Detroit. used military force against like hundreds of American citizens um, because they're not white citizens. And so they can. Yeah. It's, it's a good counterpart to the other police violence in this book that tends that's smaller scale and, and more every day. This mm-hmm. is an example of the, you know, the big, bang style massive massive large scale assaults that can happen too and that do happen mm-hmm. so they raid so, they, so the first thing that happens yeah so they the cops um go into sweetum's building and they just sort of start to clear it out they just start to take everyone in it and take them out and this is before they've opened fire on anything and they just that's the first thing they do they arrive they just start to like clear it out and malone is with them and he you know doesn't really he kind of goes around with them and, and at first he doesn't see anything he doesn't see any of the stuff that he sort of was afraid or expecting to see but then he notices on the first floor something that none of the other police officers have the sensitivity to notice mm-hmm. which is a door to the basement and he goes down into the basement and, and there's a symbol written on the door from this the oh yes. supreme alphabet and that's why they don't yeah. notice it yeah and so the now now malone's into the basement and this is sort of like the climactic piece mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the book um and it is while malone is in the basement that you that he hears uh, you know not right away but eventually the opening up of the brownings um the, the the browning m1921 heavy machine guns just unloading on the apartment buildings above but so in the basement all right so he right which is where it's worth like unpacking that just for like a brief second like the cops outside are getting so trigger happy that they're firing anti-aircraft ballistics at these apartment buildings, like these brick warehouses, while other cops are still in them. Like it's a shit show and no one has their shit together. You know, it's like they have these weapons, but not the wherewithal to like strategically use them. (laughs) You know, like sure they can turn them on and fire them, but they're like not being intelligent about this at all. And also like, why are they there? Because one cop was like spinning lies about some like random thing that's going on. Right. That's why they're there in the first place. Right. There's no loans bullshit that brings them in. And it's that moment of like, he sees them bringing them. He's like, Oh no, I didn't want that, but it's too late. And it's like, well, you should have thought of that. When you started making up what shit the hell about did you like think black was gonna happen? stealing white women, you know, like, of course that's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Anyway, so Malone is in the basement and um, it's pretty fucked up down there. Mm-hmm. He sees um, 
that the basement has been cleared and the walls removed. And so the basements of other nearby buildings have all been kind of combined into this one giant like underground chamber. Mm-hmm. And there's this weird throne sitting kind of off in the distance down deeper into the chamber. And there's stuff written on the walls, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've now he's entered this chamber and it's like full Lovecraft. Right. Yeah, it definitely it it goes. It's like entering like another dimension in certain ways or like a different genre almost. It's like been this very like kind of down to earth stuff happening. And all of a sudden you have like, you know, like these giant pits (laughs) and like, you know, the the what is it? Black Tom is writing like symbols from this book on the walls in blood in blood using (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Howard's scalp as a as a like yeah. brush. Yeah, so there's a bunch of different reveals kind of one after the other. Malone isn't really aware of what's going on yet, although he's kind of suspected it. So first Soydem comes and he kind of reveals it and then Black Tom a bunch of stuff happens in quick succession. I forget exactly what order, but what ends up happening by the end of it is that Black Tom kills Soydem mm-hmm. and had had already killed Howard. Mm-hmm. with with the straight razor his dad gave him <laughs> oh of course i actually didn't make that connect but obviously yeah and uh, how did i not make that connection and and then finishes and when when malone had got down there he had one more letter of the supreme alphabet to write and he mm-hmm. just run out of blood so that's why he kills Sweetum to get the last of the blood that he needs and when he kills Sweetum, it then finally becomes obvious that black tom is the one calling the shots not Sweetum. There was a moment prior to this where Soydem, when Black Tom, when Tommy Tester like became Black Tom and went to Soydem to like pledge himself to Soydem after his dad was killed, he had this moment where Soydem was like, you know, you'll you'll be the Octavian to my Caesar. Right. <laughs> and Black Tom's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Me, you know, meanwhile, like Caesar gets killed, Octavian becomes Augustus. Like that's a right. bad metaphor for you to choose, but. Um, not that Octavian is the one who does it, but anyway, right. so, so he, he, Black Tom's the one that's really calling the shots, you know, mm-hmm. Sweden was this sort of, you know, puppet, not a puppet, but, but a, a useful idiot, I guess, in some sense for, for Black Tom, because, you know, Sweden didn't quite have the will. There's a moment earlier where Sweden talks about what you need in order to summon the sleeping king or whatever. You need to have this kind of total commitment to doing it. And we kind of get the sense that Black Tom has it. Sweetum doesn't have it. <laughs> right. So then Black Tom it finishes writing the alphabet. And um, then he... So how does this start exactly? Like, does Malone start to run away or... Like, you know, the Mal- cops come down into the... Oh, ba- right. Like That's other right. cops yes. come down into yes. the basement. They begin firing. Yeah. The, yeah, the details of this, both times that I've read it, the details, it's, it's like the other track. thing that happens is that the book gets a little bit less, like I was just talking about how clear the prose is and it feels like it makes this like conscious decision that stuff gets a little bit harder to follow in this whole thing. And I think essentially what happens is the buildings are collapsing, the other police officers like somehow find the door and run down through it. They begin firing at Tester and like actually like I think hitting him like they begin unloading a bunch of bullets into him and he starts just like popping around like he pops behind them 
using this teleportation thing that he can do and starts like killing all of them like in succession using his knife so he essentially like with just his knife is able to like overpower all six of them um the other thing that he does is he i i don't forget if you said this um he cuts malone's eyelids off so that malone is forced to watch oh yeah he he opens this portal to like where the sleeping king is right he Gets Malone and John's hand, handshake for poetic justice reasons and cuts Malone's eyelids off so that Malone has to watch the sleeping king through the portal. <laughs> right. Right. And he he succeeds in waking him, too. I mean, so so at this point, the the kind of end of the 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 story to a degree is that they. Like all this stuff happens, the building falls, all the other cops are killed, Malone is left alive, and Black Tom disappears somewhere. And meanwhile, the last thing is that Black Tom sings for Malone the song of his mother and father. He like right. specifically tells, you know, as Malone is there with his eyelids cut off, looking into the abyss, he tells him, Look, my dad's name was Otis Tester, my mom's name was Irene Tester. Let me sing you their favorite song. Right. Well, and it's, you know, worth saying that, like, that's a song of summoning. Like, Mm. he's waking Cthulhu also by singing that song. And, you know, it gets called out at one point. I forget exactly where, but it gets called out that, like, you know, I don't know when it's going to happen. Like, the the timeline of the old gods is very different from our own. But, like, eventually, like, the seas will rise and the earth will warm. And, like, he begins describing more or less, like, global warming as, like, this thing that, like, he awoke awoke with Cthulhu. The um, apocalypse, in other words, the, the the sort of cosmic horror is like adjusted so that we can feel like it's still coming for us today. Right. It's not like safely in the past in like right. the 1920s Harlem. It's like, right. oh, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah, it's worth noting that in this version of like the horror of love of Red Hook, like the old gods are awakened. Like, yes. like you yes. know, they, yes. they, Unlike there's in, not like the day is not saved. Like the old right. gods are awakened and they are still coming for us. Yeah, in the original horror at Red Hook, you know, it's the the actions of some few people managed to like forestall this apocalypse, but in this version, it, it nothing. No, the, the apocalypse not only is not forestalled, but it's caused by like legitimate grievance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about that. I we should go through the like just finish up the plot here and then talk about the legitimate yeah. grievance thing cuz I want to talk about that. Yeah. Um yeah, I guess that's most of, like eventually he's dug the rest out. The rest is epilogue, yeah. Right, he you know, he's dug out and there's sort of like a description of like how this story's the reality of the story gets turned into Lovecraft's The Horror Red Hook and like why there are like differences between them. And it kind of, you know, it's a cute little like bit of retconning the horror of Red Hook and this yeah. to like work together. I mean, I think that's actually really cool because it's also a way of describing the author's theory of how racist myth gets created in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say more. Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, Victor Laval is saying to us, like, look, you know, this racist myth comes from somewhere. It comes from a legitimate experiences people have. It comes from a legitimate horror. And this is how it gets transmogrified into something, you know, vile and, and sort of wrong, despite coming from these, like, experiences that people have. Malone, you know, he had this experience of being, of, like, being forced in a violent and, you know, terrible way to look at a nonetheless real suffering and real 
pain that was inflicted on other people in violent, terrible ways. And like in some sense, you know, you know, Malone's inability to deal with what he saw or Malone's like horror of what he saw, like what happens isn't that Malone, you know, can't handle the truth. It's that society can't handle the truth from Malone and society like pushes Malone into conforming to this other. And Malone is like willing to be pushed, you know, I mean, like Malone is also having a hard time handling the truth. It's not like the truth is easy for him here. True, true. But 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 Malone Malone like knows what he saw on some level and like isn't at first at least isn't like lie Malone doesn't like generate from nothing a lie to himself Malone Mm -hmm. is sort of pushed to generate that lie by society kind of cracking down on him for believing stuff that makes no sense it makes no sense that well it's a larger thing of like you know the whole lie that he told about Ma'at it's like a larger version of that where he's like no one's gonna believe that someone swallowed an entire thing into the outside world so i'll turn it into like he kidnapped her because that's easy yeah there's like a, it's vaguely you know <laughs> there's a metaphorical version of what's going on where it's like you know if you if you treated the story as a metaphor it's sort of like oh um you know uh an african-american whose life was ruined for no good fucking reason has decided to seek you know glorious vengeance and society mm-hmm. can't handle that. They can't handle any part of that. It can't handle the fact that the African-American would be powerful enough to do that. It can't handle the fact that he would, like, want to do that. It can't handle any part of that. there was any legitimate grievance in the first yes. place. Yes, yes. And so at each step of the way of describing that scenario, society slash Malone, you know, invents a kind of fictionalized, sanitized version that is kind of a different type of horror story that somehow removes all the all the reality. You know, so mm. horror at Red Hook becomes this. Becomes well, it also this... turns Sweetum like into the main antagonist because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh, he's rich and white, so like obviously he's the one with the real yeah, power makes sense. here. Yeah, uh, instead of being a patsy for right. somebody with a with a much darker story, right? I like that. That's that's I like that a lot, Matt. That's cool. I I think you're right. I hadn't quite thought about that in quite those terms. And I think you're very right that it's like, it's both like a nice sort of like tie in with the original, but also this like description of how myth gets made. And in particular, these kind of like really pernicious myths. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because Malone is, is a little like, he's not totally unsympathetic, especially now that he's been tortured you know, um, Malone has to wear these weird goggles for the rest of his life. And he's basically sort of pushed into this early retirement in this small town so that he can, that's near enough to like a therapist figure that he can go to his therapist figure and, mm-hmm. you know, try to make some semblance of a life for himself. And the final scene we get of Malone is also the final scene we get of Malone from the horror at Red Hook, although the order is different because at Red Hook, it's like the first scene. Mm-hmm. Malone is basically like, you know, many months have passed or years and Malone is trying to like be normal and he's walking through this little seaside New England town in Rhode Island and he sees a building. It's just a little bit too big. Yeah, and it like, or or it, does he see something in the sky? What is it that he sees exactly? He basically saw an abhorrent face in the looming clouds. A pair of inhuman eyes stared down at them from the heavens, shining like starlight. Then and there, Malone finally heard the last words Black Tom whispered down in that basement. 
I'll take Cthulhu over you devils any day. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> so good. Uh, anyway, so Malone has that experience in this little seaside town and then like freaks the fuck out. Right. And that that freak out is the first scene of the horror at Red Hook, the original story. And it's like the second to last thing that happens in this one. I just looked at yeah. the last thing is Tommy and Buckeye getting together at the Victoria club. And that's when, that's when like yeah. black Tom slash Tommy, you know, talk about like, Oh, you know, I don't know when it's yeah. going to happen, but like change is right. coming. Yeah. It's a, it's a great bookend. You know, he, mm-hmm. he starts out the beginning of the book is him leaving Harlem. The end of the book is him coming back to Harlem. Right. And he has this great moment with Buckeye and Victoria society. And he tells Buckeye, like, look, I, I, I forgot about this. Like when I was in the depths of my rage, I forgot about this thing that exists, this sort of, you know, put upon, but nonetheless real home, this, this, this real sort of home society that, that I have, you know, that for all that it's attacked constantly, it still exists. Like I can go to the Victoria society and have this like lovely food and you, you know, my friend and, but like, it's too late now. Right. <laughs> I already did. I already did the thing. Too, too little, too late. Uh, I'll take Cthulhu. <laughs> That's so great. I love that that line. Right. It's so good. Well, and I think this is the, you know, this, this, the other books that this kind of reminded me of. Uh, I, I don't want to get too deep into spoiler territory, but there's an element of the um, uh, N.K. Jemison's The Broken Earth that are kind of also mm. about this, that like, you know, what what does it look like when someone reacts to real grievances in a way that like breaks Mm -hmm. the world? Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, I think it's interesting that both books were written around the same time and published around the same time and got very similar accolades. And, you know, this like kind of like this thing happening of, of these, you know, uh, you know, two different black authors, kind of American black authors talking about, these issues through this kind of like fantasy horror horror fantasy type of genre post-apocalyptic fantasy whatever uh and i i've seen nk jemison like talk about this and I, i've read her like write specifically about it which is why i'm bringing her up um that this element of like the way she puts the question is like you know what is an appropriate response to slavery like is violent revolution an appropriate response to slavery? And that's specifically what she's thinking about. I think Mm -hmm. this book is less about slavery in particular. Um, But you know, like what is the appropriate response to like unjust social conditions is, is I think Mm -hmm. that this question that both of these deal with, and I think both books are not saying that like, Oh yeah, like bringing about the apocalypse is an appropriate response, but maybe they're saying it's an understandable one. They're like giving you a sense of like, why would someone bring about like choose to bring about the apocalypse? Like what are the situations in which, and I think it, you know, going back to that question of communism, which was on my mind too, um, you know, like obviously there were a lot of ties between like communism and like black revolutionary politics in like the sixties and, you know, it's sort of like this question of like, okay, like what, you know, if, if we can't have a better life given the current social structures, like in what ways is it okay to change the current social structures? And I think the same question is true for like us now and global warming. Like if, you know, neoliberal capitalism is going to warm the earth by seven degrees Celsius in the next hundred years, then 
what does it take to stop that? <laughs> like, what, you know, like at what point can we just admit that like, this isn't working? Like we are like, it's not going to sustain itself and there's no way within the current system for it to sustain itself. And like, what, what does it look like? You know, there it's maybe easier because it's like, you know, one apocalypse versus another, like, you know, I, I don't know. These this are is big, this like vague question that haunts me. It's not one that I think I have yeah. an answer to or anything so much as like, it feels like I'm being haunted by this question, like all the time these yeah. days. I mean, this is, this is the, this is one of the reasons why this book is so good because he's taken, he's taken Lovecraft and not only has he changed the POV to give us a perspective on it that is an antidote to the original paranoid racism, but he's also changed the horror calculation to be something that allows us to experience that twinge of real dread, you know, mm. because that's how the story has to work. If it's really going to be effective on every level, it's going to have to activate some kind of very real dread. And, you know, Lovecraft, you know, when he was alive, I think he believed that, the stuff that he was talking about was actually scary. Like he thought that the immigrants and stuff were, were legitimately dreadful mm -hmm. and awful and mm -hmm. horrified him just the sight of them, you know? And, and that's not, you know, that, that can't activate our dread today. It couldn't probably back then for a lot of people also, but, but like, you know, that's no longer and maybe never should have been a, a useful source, but Victor Laval has some perfectly, you know, terrifying alternatives, you know, the, well, I, I would disagree with that in the sense that like it clearly activates a lot of people's dread today. Like if you watch Fox News, like Fox News is like a Lovecraftian horrorscape of, you know, all the immigrants yeah. that are like coming here yeah. to kill us. And like, yeah, like, fine. I, I think it, it does, I, no, but it's it shouldn't. not just fine, yes. but it's like, right. I agree. It shouldn't. But like, yeah. I think this is actually something that has. Yeah, it's like all over the place right now and is worth being able to like see and understand why and where it, it does activate that dread very real yeah in a very real way in american politics i mean today. you know i i just i just mean to say the, the the book doesn't the book um works because it is an effective it, it plays with like so, so i i actually think that um immigrant fear or whatever whatever you want to call it fear of the other like has sort of big bugs in it as a as a kind of a source of dread it, it is buggy it has like flaws so to speak flaws is the wrong you know that's an awkward way to put it but you know it, it, it suffers from the the problem uh, from the perspective of an author trying to write about it that it's not you know based in on some level it's sort of understandable but it can be but the more you know about people like it's defeated by empathy re re relatively easily in a person to on a person to person level in other words, you know, like in the real world, people aren't afraid of like individual other people that they know unless they have some other reason. They, like it's not generally the case that people are afraid of individual immigrants if they know them. What people are afraid of is this sort of like general concept of unknown immigrant alien culture whatever that is right but that's why it's a powerful mythology to like prevent people from being willing to get to know other people like it's 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 i i would i would argue that this isn't the bug but at rather the feature of like trying to shut down empathy yeah but it doesn't work as well as a as a as a like if you're trying to write um a story that has this sort of like tingling dread aspect to it um 
and you want your story to be accurate, an accurate depiction of life as it is, it's very difficult to square that circle if you're going to use, you know, paranoid fantasies that don't represent an accurate depiction of people's interactions. Like you could feature in your story, as this story does, you could feature like paranoid fantasies in your story, you know, working the way that they do in the real world. But I think if you want to be realistic, you have to, as this book does, show how people overcome those fantasies, show the limits of those fantasies, not take those fantasies totally at face value and just like, because then you, you'll, you'll have the same problems that Lovecraft does where if, like, it's so easy to read Lovecraft and be like, well, but, you know, like, these people aren't just literal animals as he describes them like obviously you know that that yeah, but uh, it's easy for us but like you like i think the assumption that realism is a goal of any of these authors or readers is uh, uh not a a good one right like again i don't think it's buggy i think it actually works i think like and i think i'm not saying it doesn't work i'm not saying it doesn't work i i I, of course it it, like works it's like impossible to deny that it it works it's i'm just saying that it's not it's not as good of a story because it's too simple it's it's too simple to be as good and rich and complex a story fodder as like cosmic horror caused by like massive collective action problems is like Mm -hmm. I, I, at no point have I, have I thought like, oh, I, I don't think that works. I, I, I think it clearly does. It worked back then. It continues to work in, in like, you know, like xenophobia and, and race panic and like people being alienated by like cultures that aren't the one they grew up with. All of that stuff is obviously real. It's just, it's just less, I, I, I think it is, it is, it's sort of fundamentally simpler than a portrayal of people as they are that involves not only the level of their fear but also the level of their empathy you know if you involve both aspects then you necessarily get something that's more complicated than if you only involved the one or the other yeah sure and i I think that complexity that. that complexity is better for stories i think it makes a better book and 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 so this book as a revision of lovecraft that adds levels to it is better than the original. It it, it like it transcends yes. it. It transcends. Right, the I completely agree. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I I think this story is vastly better than the original one, which was you know, and I think is probably better than most, if not all, of Lovecraft's stories. Right. Yeah. I mean, like some of his stories are better than others of his too. I mean, he wrote some really shitty stories, and he wrote some really really compelling ones too. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I do think at the same time that, you know, there's also this subjective element here of like, okay, sure. On the one hand, like this more complicated thing is better, but it's also harder. It's also like, like for me and you, maybe it's easier to relate with, but for other people, it's harder to relate to. Right. Like, I don't, I don't think you can, you can purely put it on this thing of like, it's, you know, like it's going to be better for everyone or that everyone's going to like it more because some people like bad things and because some people like do actually think this way, right? Like, like a story like this is not an antidote to racism or xenophobia. Or oh no, like no, you I know, don't. You can't give this story to someone who like thinks bad things about all immigrants and have them like think better things about immigrants because of this book. Yeah. I mean, right? I think like, the one objective thing is I think it's more accurate. It's more, it's closer to reality. Sure. I do. I, 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 I and of course, that. I, I believe in something called reality. I, you know, it's, 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 you know, I mean, hmm. 
there are a lot of there are a lot of like subtly different things going on here like i agree with mm-hmm. like so much of what you're saying um you know uh, you know so okay on the one hand um there are a lot of stories about uh alienation and paranoia and fear of others um that are better than lovecraft's like worst racist crap you know there, there, mm. it's possible to write a story about alienation and fear of the other that is complicated and effective. My original point was more comparing Lovecraft, Lovecraft's version of those things, to Victor Laval's version of those things. I think just that comparison, you know, it's pretty clear, like which one is more yeah, complicated yeah. and better. Um, well, I think the or, interesting uh, thing the, is Red like Hook versus this book. Better. Like, I don't know if I would necessarily. Yeah. Well, agree I just with mean, that. I just mean like. Um, uh, like dense is really what I mean, not complicated. Like it has more elements. It's not. Yeah. It's actually a simple story, right? It's like a very simple story. It's. I. I just mean it has. It's. It's dealing with more layers of the human experience. Um, well, I think it's you know in particular it is more interested in the internal lives of all of or of yeah more that's exactly what I mean yeah. than Lovecraft. That's exactly is. what I mean. Um, yeah, and I, I think, think my my maybe my biggest gripe with this book is that like you know the original book was really about like xenophobia in particular, like like the horror at Lovecraft is about like all these immigrants coming and how scary all those immigrants are, and this book turns that into like a you know. Like it reclaims it for kind of like the black American experience, but it doesn't actually give that much agency to the immigrants in the story. Like we don't actually get any of their points of view. We don't see how their life on their, like we don't like personalize any of the immigrants in the story. There's still kind of this like undifferentiated mass in a whole lot of ways. Um, and I think it's the, you know, it's a novella. It's only like 150 pages long. There's only so much you can do with it, but I think it would be the kind of like one complaint that I had about the book when I read it, especially the second time was that, you know, it, for all that it like does a very good job of like dealing with all of the, the, the psychological reality in a way that Lovecraft just never was interested in. And the way of like dealing with that psychological reality is like, I agree objectively better than what Lovecraft is doing. It still only does that for like some of its characters. It like doesn't do that for all of its yeah. characters. Yeah. Um, I, and I think, you know, I mean, I think there's a way that, you there's a way that like tiny details can without increasing the length of a work um achieve more of that making it denser thing um Mm -hmm. so like i mean i guess the real word for what i'm talking about isn't complexity it's denseness um or like richness um yeah i mean that's why i say psychological reality because it seems like a part of it is like being just like true about like the fact that everyone is actually a person and everyone has an equally complex inner life yes exactly and i think i think that there's an idea one thing that i don't like is there's an idea that pulp shouldn't do that like that that somehow um this sort of richness of depiction of reality is uh contrary to the ethos of a pulpy story and i think this book is a great argues that though i i don't think it's an explicit argument or it may probably is somewhere but but i think i I at least i'll speak for myself i grew up thinking that i grew up thinking that okay okay i grew up when i was little i i i don't know where i got the idea but i i thought that like that like there's a kind of story which i like by the way uh, like this is me then so young matt would think like oh i like these stories about 
monsters or wizards spaceships or, or spaceships or, yeah. or, you know, like robots or whatever. I like them, but stories like that don't involve psychological. You know, it's like it comes probably came from me reading a lot of Asimov and re- yeah, reading and a lot. You, you know, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, that's not true. And there's a lot. There's so many examples of it not being true. There's so many great pulp stories that have this richness. And this is yet another one. Now, obviously, mm. it's I, I, I agree with you. It, it, like, you know, there's places it could be richer. Definitely. For sure. Uh, I think not depicting the it's a weird choice in a way or it's a it's an understandable choice, but it's a weird shift in a way from the original that that this retelling isn't about immigrants, really. Like the immigrants Mm -hmm. are like totally ancillary to the Mm -hmm. I mean, it's about, you know, it's about um, black America relating to white America in some sense. Or it's about it's about fathers and sons. It's about um, rage and vengeance. You know, it's about. But it's not really about immigrants. I mean, the only little way that it is is the really the Victorious Society parts are the are the parts that that are the closest to being like that. But there aren't any actual Victorious Society like members who are characters. Buckeye isn't a member; he's an employee, and he's another Harlemite like Black Tom. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I think. Yeah, by then there were reports that three children had been kidnapped and were being held by the tenement building overtaken by Robert Sudiam. The children were reported as blue-eyed Norwegians. Mobs well, were said no, to be no, forming. No, 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 no. Listen, 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 listen. Mobs were said to be forming among the Norwegians in the neighborhoods closer to Guanis, and the police needed to reach Parker Place first. Ethnic wars could become a problem if they spilled out from Red Hook. Yeah, that's after he start. He lies though. I know. I never said it wasn't. But that's because I, like, he lied. No, about but it. listen. But listen. But no, it's not. It, this is. These are reports on the ground. These are not other. So my read of that is that people. that was caused by his lying about it. Whereas in the horror at Red Hook, that's like he doesn't lie about it. He hears that rumor and then like, um, you know, that, there's no right. there's no he element of Malone. He lying. obviously lies about the like Ma'at thing. I. I, the th- the thing I wanted to like actually point out here though, so like whether it's caused by the lying or not, and like again, this is my like my one kind of complaint about the book is that like that this stuff still happens, right? Like maybe there's a like slightly more generous read to it than the version of Lovecraft, but like there is still this element in which you know it's not simply that like he retold the story from the perspective of like Black America instead of immigrant America. It's that he kept all the immigrant stuff in, right? But didn't choose to actually like humanize them in any way and instead chooses to have these like, you know, potential ethnic wars between the different neighborhoods of Brooklyn. And like, I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm not saying that that it's even like unrealistic in any way so much as like, it's interesting the degree to which we get the like psychological Mm -hmm. reality of everyone else. Um, and And I think it's, you know, I would have rathered a longer book that also explored that and maybe had a third point of view character, right? Like, uh, yeah, I, honestly, you've totally convinced me. I hadn't thought about this at all, and and I think you're right. I think it's a missed opportunity. So, so, so that's all. I mean, you know, I just wanted to be right. <laughs> I still think I'm right about the rumor, but I think you totally right, convinced I, me about the like the the this is a this is something you know when I was reading it, I just it just kind of. I enjoyed so much the things that I liked about it. Didn't think about it that much right. at all. No, it was only on reread that I noticed it. And it was because I had read the horror of, of Red Hook again. Like I didn't reread that when I first read this novel. And so when rereading it again and realizing like, oh, wait, no, this this was, you know, the story was about this other thing, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know, Black Tom yeah. 
is not a there are no Harlem characters in the horror of Red Hook. Yeah. Black Tom, Tommy, like these are like made up whole cloth for this story. Right. Um, he could, is, he could I mean, just good, as well. Have, like, right. Yeah. He could just as well have made up a character who is an immigrant who you right. know has. Right. Yeah. And, and that really would have. I mean, honestly, imagining that it's, it sounds it sounds awesome. It sounds like an awesome book having that edition made. Yeah. Right. But, and, you know, it, it still is an awesome book. And I don't still mean is, to, like, yeah. I don't want to be like, yeah. oh, it's problematic. So I don't dis- I dislike it kind of thing. No, it's just sort of like, you know, it's interesting to like for me to analyze like what people, different people like include and don't include and how that works in these stories. Um, OK, I think that's that's those are all of my thoughts on the book. Yeah. Do you have anything more you wanted to talk about? I think we hit on the big stuff. I feel like I'll remember something, but it's honestly, it's a great book. There's a lot to talk about. I hope I hope other people have their own really cool conversations about this book because it's also a, a book that's really worth talking about since all the things that it's delving into are such incredibly pressing, modern, in-our-face mm-hmm. issues. I mean, mm-hmm. this stuff is so... It's amazing, too, because when I read the horror at Red Hook, it was like a slap in the face with its relevance to modern life in America. And this book was right. such a the horror at Red Hook almost reads like something that like Steve Bannon might have written as like yeah. Lovecraft fan fiction. Yeah, or Wellbeck. Yeah, and, and it's, right. It's and, <laughs> well, well yeah, and it's it's um. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> it's it's um. I I think it's interesting because um, this book does such a good job of keeping that relevance even as it, mm-hmm. it, it 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 keeps that relevance in place even as it does so much to in en- en- enrich the other aspects of the book um i guess we should also really quickly shout out the um the story or the not story the article you found in the la review of books i will i will tweet that and link that in the show notes yeah just i mean basically there's a lot of other uh lovecraft revisionism stuff happening this is one of the best there's other stuff too a lot of it i haven't read but would like to uh Mm -hmm. and uh the larb did a uh (laughs) did a recent uh, article just in the last few days about uh about lovecraft revisionism and i I liked it right yeah it's it's october so it's relevant (laughs) the larb doing the same thing we are um Cool. All right. Well, yeah. And, you know, to the point of like hoping other people will have conversations about this, if you, you know, want to have those conversations with us at all, tweet at us at SpectologyPod or email us at SpectologyPod at gmail.com. I always like getting that stuff. And I think it's kind of like fun. Like, you know, if you have thoughts that we missed or like want to like plus one something we said or whatever, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll reply at least. I'm the one who who handles all the social media duties. Um, So I would love to, would love to hear from our listeners about any of this, whether you, you know, liked it or didn't or have other, you know, maybe like other good recommendations of this like revisionist Lovecraft genre. I'd love to, I'd love to know that as well. And then, um, yeah, what well, uh, music is done by Dubby J. You can find him on SoundCloud. Uh, our artwork is Noah Bradley. He's at noahbradley.com. You can find prints and that kind of thing. Uh, let's see. Next month, we. I'm not 100% sure what we'll be doing because we had a guest, but it's unclear exactly what his availability is. So we we will will let you all know what we're doing next month. But we'll have we'll have a book and we'll do some stuff and. Um, I'm also going to be guest hosting on another podcast here called the uh, Who Goes There podcast, where um, 
I'm reading The Left Hand of Darkness right now, and we're, we're going to talk about that. So I will, you know, I'll mention that in, in an upcoming episode too, but that should be fun if you guys want to hear more of my dulcet tones talking about science fiction. <laughs> I'm smiling. <laughs> yeah, you're smirking is what you're doing. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, uh, sorry for the self-promotion, but I guess that's the whole name of this game. Uh, Apology anyway, denied. <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, that's, that's it from us, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good Feeling time, good. guys. Feeling Thanks. Octobery. Gonna, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe, you know, honestly, sit down with a short cosmic horror story, have an apple cider, have a, have a hot have chocolate, a, have a pumpkin spice something, which I hate, but people like those, I hear. <laughs> you know, enjoy the fall. It's just a nutmeg flavored coffee. I think that's delicious. Nutmeg's <laughs> good. I like nutmeg. All right. Bye, Matt. This was fun. Peace out. I'll see y'all later. <laughs>